Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to this special episode of the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. You join me in the extraordinary splendour of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office where I'm sitting down with Jeremy Hunt, the Foreign Secretary, to discuss what he sees as a crisis in democracy around the world, the risk of social unrest if Brexit is not properly delivered, and how foreign ministers use WhatsApp to carry out diplomacy around the world. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you listen in these febrile political times. You never know when another episode will drop. And do get in touch. Tell us what you think of what we've been discussing and suggest topics that we could cover in future episodes. Tweet at Times Red Box or email redbox at thetimes.co.uk. Jeremy Hunt, here we are sitting in the amazingly grand Foreign Office where successive British Foreign Secretaries have sat for decades and decades looking out across the world and seeing the relentless spread of democracy and freedom and, and trying to sort of forward those Western values. What is it that concerns you about what's happening in the world at the moment? Well, I think we are at a tipping point now and we've had a world order that's really been a chapter in two halves since the end of the Second World War. Uh, Churchill and Roosevelt, between them, constructed probably the most successful uh, way of ordering countries in the history of humanity, which over 70 years has led to unprecedented peace uh, and essentially uh, ended the system that we've always had until that moment where might is right and big countries are free to walk into small countries. And they changed that, and we had the structure of the United Nations and very benign leader of the democratic world in the form of the United States. And then the second half of that chapter is really post-1989 with the fall of the Berlin Wall, where we moved from having two superpowers to one superpower um, and an even more benign period. And you can see that in that period since then, uh, the number of democracies in the world went up by about 45, so... There are just under 200 countries in the United Nations, around a quarter turned democratic. And overall, there are 116 countries at last count of the 193 that qualify as democracies, although not all of them qualify as free. And that world order is now changing. And we're at a tipping point. And by 2030, so within you know the medium-term horizon, the largest economy in the world will, for the first time in our lifetimes, not be a democracy. Uh, last year, according to Freedom House, 71 countries across the world saw a net decline in freedom. Uh, we are seeing 
the spread of autocratic values, the imprisonment and murder of journalists, and the mood is changing. The report that you talked about, it is extraordinary, the Freedom House report, because you do think that everything was sort of going in the right direction, and when it starts listing countries which are sort of moving backwards. What, what do you think is behind that? What are the... Because the report touches on, does it sort of list a whole load of things, whether it was the financial crash, concern about immigration? What, what for you, is the driving force behind that change? I think there are um, two big things that are behind it. The first is that the uh, Soviet era, yeah. we were freer in the West, but we were also richer. And so one of the reasons why people were constantly trying to escape from behind the Iron Curtain was because, not just because their freedoms would be respected, but because they could see we were far more prosperous. Uh, we now have a model with the Chinese model, which is an autocratic model, which potentially uh, could mean uh, a country being as wealthy or even wealthier than the West uh, without that freedom. And that's the first time that's happened. At the second time, in Western countries, uh, we've had a big disengagement by chunks of the electorate across Europe, the UK and the US. Uh, voters who feel that the political elites haven't been listening to them. Immigration is probably the most salient issue, but there are many other issues. Uh, that is behind the Trump phenomenon in the US. It certainly contributed to Brexit here. It's contributing to the rise of populist movements across Europe. And those two things combined have led to a crisis in confidence in our model. One of the really striking things in the Freedom House report was it now describes the US as a flawed democracy, which if you sort of stop and think about the United States, you'd think that was the model that everyone was supposed to be aspiring to. What's gone wrong in America? I would never describe the United States like that. Um, I think the, the truth is that it's a very um, active, strong democracy because it elected a president like President Trump who is articulating the concerns of the very group of voters who felt most disenfranchised and, and alienated. Um, and so it's actually got a democratic system that's reflected it's working in that sense. the yeah, fears, yeah. Um, uh, whatever you might think about Trump's policies or views. It certainly has led to people questioning how democratic systems work. And I think there are things in the plumbing of democracies that we need to sort out as a matter of absolute urgency, uh, particularly stopping foreign countries being able to interfere through social media in the electoral processes of other countries. Uh, we certainly need to take very uh, quick steps to sort that out. And obviously there's ongoing investigations into the way that uh, Russia did or didn't influence the US election. Have you seen any evidence since you've been Foreign Secretary of Russia interfering in the democratic process in this country? I've seen no evidence that Russia has influenced the outcome of any democratic process, whether it's a referendum or an election. Uh, but I have seen a map of Europe which points to all the different countries where Russia has tried to interfere. Um, and you know, there aren't very many countries where it hasn't had a crack um, at, at doing this, and it's totally unacceptable. And it's an easy... Do you, th do you think that they've had a crack at Britain? They may well have tried to influence yeah. uh, the outcomes in, in Britain, as in other countries, yeah. but um, that is relatively easily within our power to sort out, um, and we need to do that. Um, the bigger question, which I think is a challenge for the political class in this country... Um, as in other countries, is making sure that we have uh, leaders 
who are able to be in touch with um, the concerns of ordinary people. That, I think, for me, was one of the most striking bits of Theresa May's speech in the House of Commons uh, when she was talking in support of the deal that she's got with the European Union, that she started by saying, you know, let's remember why people voted for Brexit and let's not betray them or allow them to feel that they've been betrayed. One of the really striking things is this survey, the World Value Survey, and it asks, how do you view having a strong leader who does not have to bother with Parliament and elections? And they ask this right across the world. I was amazed to see that it's well more than half of people born in the 1990s in the UK think that that's good or very good. What's going on when young people seem to... And that actually, you know, the further back you go, the less inclined people are in the UK to agree with that. What's going on in Britain if, you know, the, millennials, the millennial generation who are all supposed to be touchy-feely, you know, bleeding-heart liberals actually think there's a good idea to have a leader who doesn't have to bother with elections and democracy? Well, I grew up in the 1980s. Uh, my dad was in the Navy all his life, and he spent his whole career in the Navy doing Cold War exercises to prepare for a potential Soviet attack. And I think that that was a period when none of us took democracy or democratic values for granted. And we were proud of the fact that we had meaningful elections that really could change the course of our country's history and that we're in a country where individual rights were respected. The challenge has been since 1989 where cognoscenti have thought that battle's won. And so we've stopped arguing for our values and our system. And so things have been eroded at the margins and we haven't done anything about it. And so I think those kind of statistics are an indictment of the way that we have not properly argued for the kind of values that we believe in. I happen to believe that the reason that uh, in my lifetime um, absolute poverty has been reduced to from half the world's population to less than 10% of the world's population is because of... Uh, open societies where we've allowed scientific endeavour, we've allowed challenge, uh, we've had freedom in all the different senses of the world. Um, But I think that we haven't got across how important, profoundly important it is to have those kind of open societies. And that's why um, people are being seduced by the alternatives. Do you think there's also an element of, while we've had this open, liberal society. There are people who do feel like they've just been, just been left behind by that, whether it is concern about immigration or since the financial crash. You know, we tried globalisation and, you know, touchy-feely liberal values and the financial crash happened and people are still feeling the, the impact of that and they don't feel like the political class reacted. Well, I think there's some very interesting analysis about that in Stephen Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now. And what he shows is that... Uh, the impact of the financial crash uh, and what's been happening to uh, poverty over the period since then. And what you can see since then is that across the world, uh, middle classes and poorer people in poor countries have continued to get significantly richer and middle classes and richer people in rich countries have continued to get richer. But working class and lower middle class people in rich countries are the one group that have uh, either seen their incomes stagnate or they've seen them decline. And so those are the 
people who feel most disenfranchised. And I think one of the lessons for the political class is, particularly in the UK context, is that this has coincided with a period of very technocratic-looking government. So since Thatcher, you know, you've had Major, Blair, Brown, Cameron, and these are all leaders who have champion the middle ground, championed, if you like, the reasonable approach to politics. It's a, an approach that most of us feel instinctively very comfortable with, you know, uh, being honest about the fact that the compromises need to be made and so on and so forth. But sometimes that style of leadership uh, hasn't been successful in connecting with certain groups in society. And we need, I think, as a political class, uh, to work out how we're going to keep everyone on board. Theresa May is the same, of the same mould, though, isn't she, in terms of being a sort of technocratic leader in the, in the same mould as all the other people that you listed? I would say um, that there is one very big area where she isn't, and that has been the views that she's consistently championed on immigration, where she's consistently been very hawkish. And when you talk to her about her views on immigration... Um, it, it is deeply driven by a concern for groups in society who feel left behind and a sense that immigration, whilst it is a very positive and welcome thing for wealthier people, you know, your Polish plumbers, your Czech nannies and so on, um, for other people, they worry about the changes, the social changes brought about by immigration. They worry about the impact on their wages. And uh, so she has been the politician in my political lifetime who has wanted to address that issue. And so, I don't want to get too bogged down in the Brexit debate, but when people are saying, oh, well, if we tried this plan instead, or well, that one, you know, if you go for Norway or... FD, that's why she's so determined that if, if, if nothing else comes out of the Brexit deal, controlling immigration is the thing that she's determined to, to secure. Any, any other alternative which makes that not possible... Well, I think that is her central insight, and it's one that I very much agree with, yeah. which is that um, there may well be all the reasons why you or I think that uh, Brexit presents opportunities for this country, but for the majority of the 52%, uh, the single litmus test by which they will be saying, have we really left the EU or not? will be whether we get control of our immigration policy and through actually, Parliament. Actually, a chunk of the 48. I mean, people could have been concerned about immigration, but on balance voted Remain. But if we are leaving, then surely that must be Absolutely. One, of, one of the gets away. What have you made of the, the increasingly uh, angry debate this week? Not, I don't mean the debate in the comments on the deal, but the, some of the language being used by leavers. Maria Caulfield, Tory MP, tweeting this week, not sure there is even democracy in this country anymore. Powerful elites seem to know best and openly mock us. Digby Jones spoke at the Tory party conference this year, beware the tyranny of Parliament. That's the sort of language which all feeds into this. For a Conservative MP to say, not sure there's even democracy in this country anymore. Well, I think the difficulty that we have got is that we have a consensus view in Parliament which is different to the consensus view in the country. And I think Parliament has to be very careful. We're a parliamentary democracy. We all believe in parliamentary democracy. Um, but we have to be very careful, uh, a bit like the House of Lords is always careful about how it uses its power um, because it doesn't want to um, risk the legitimacy of that power. We've got to be very careful as Parliament not to get out of step with where the public are on Brexit. And the public do want us to get on with it, 
and they want us to control our borders. And that is a fundamental thing. So for me, as someone who voted Remain, my view is we will not have social stability in this country if we end up with a solution that doesn't mean that we have parliamentary control of immigration policy. Uh, and I think it's absolutely essential. Um, and that is even for someone who voted in a way that would have meant that we didn't have parliamentary control because we are a democracy more than anything else. So I think uh, the truth is that we all have a sense of democracy, but what we've got to be really careful about is because everyone does this in politics, uh, they take their own view and then they say, and of course that is the democratic outcome. <laughs> and it's very easy to do that. The trouble, the trouble with Brexit is you've got 650 different views in the Commons to what Brexit should be and 17 million different ones in the country. Exactly. And so that's why you have to make a judgment as to what would create social stability and allow us to move on. And I've always thought that uh, cleanly leaving the EU, but then having the friendliest of possible trading relations, diplomatic relations, people to people relations, is the only way that we will settle this issue. Because the deepest fears of the Remainers are not on the whole about leaving the legal structures of the EU. It's about the sense of pulling the drawbridge up, becoming a closed country. We can assuage those fears because I, I know no one in the cabinet who wants us to become that type of Britain. The deepest fears of the Brexiteers are that we don't get control of fundamental issues like immigration, uh, that people can influence through their vote at a general election. And when you talk about social instability, we only need to look across the channel to see what happens when there's a disconnect between the government and the people, and that's ostensibly over fuel prices. How much worse do you think it would be in the UK if, if people did look at what was happening in Westminster and just think you've got this wrong? Well, I personally think that if we were, for example, to have another referendum, overturn the results of the first referendum, um, let's say the results were exactly reversed, so that uh, this time it was 48% leave, 52% remain. You'd have 48% of the country who'd voted to leave twice. They would be incredibly angry. Uh, and I wouldn't rule out real social instability in this country. And that's why I think what we have to do as parliamentarians is not just think about what our own views are on Brexit, but we have to think, what is the solution that is actually going to bring the country together? So, you know, not just for the 52% who voted for Brexit, but for the 48% who voted to remain. What is the way that we bring those two people together and allow ourselves to move on? And if the deal gets through if at some point, whether it's next week or, or further afield, what can you do as Foreign Secretary sitting in this building to try and, try and tackle some of the things that you've been talking about? Well, I have said that I think... Britain's role post-Brexit. You know, Boris talked about global Britain, and I've tried to put some flesh on the bones of what global Britain should be. And Was there, uh, was there not a lot of flesh left on the bones? When <laughs> well, you no, I think, I, I, mean, I think what Boris was trying to do as the leader of the Leave campaign is to say we're going to be an open, outward-looking Britain. This is not going to be a pulling up the drawbridge moment. What I have focused more on is the changing world order. And what I think Britain can do is we're not a superpower, but we are a global power. And we have probably better links through the Commonwealth, through uh, our relations with our European neighbours, through our traditional alliance with the United States. We have probably a better network of links than pretty much any other country in the world. And I think we need to be the invisible chain that links the democracies of the world together so that we are prepared 
for any onslaught on our values that may happen. And I think the big lesson, the, one of the most successful institutions uh, in the Cold War was NATO. Uh, that was when democratic countries stood together because of shared values. It wasn't a transactional alliance, it was a values-based alliance. And I think we now need to be thinking, what is that values-based alliance that will stand us all in good stead in the 21st century? I just want to ask you very quickly, talk about the links between other countries. Is it why you... you You've been surprised by the use of WhatsApp in global diplomatic circles. Yes, it is interesting, actually, and it's, it's uh, fascinating how um, foreign ministers now, uh, when they meet, they nearly always exchange mobile numbers, and uh, we use texting and WhatsApping to get messages across. Uh, and um, I thought the Foreign Office... Uh, machine would be very against this um, because it's you're putting put whole swathes of people in this amazing building out of work. If you're uh, that's what I thought. Going well, actually, quite the opposite um, because they recognise that you know if you're going to get through to a minister quickly, get a quick decision, it can be very helpful. So um, there's a, an amazing network of foreign ministers contacting each other uh, the whole time, and it's it's an effective tool of diplomacy. You just have to make sure you put the message in the right WhatsApp group. We've all done that. Yes, we've all yes. just put it in the wrong one. <laughs> Jeremy Hunt, thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. 